Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $20 on the steel MS-162 or MS-170 chainsaw. Real steel. Offer valid through June 30th, 2024. See participating retailer for details. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash Lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Lawless. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless and welcome the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue-colored glasses. This week, we'll be talking Messi and Beckham and U.S. players heading over to Europe and our favorite TV and movies from 2020. All sorts of good stuff in the uh, in the show this week. Our first show of the year 2021, and I don't want to speak for everybody, but I venture to say that there's a lot of people out there, including the people that you're about to listen to, uh, that are looking for good and better things in uh, in 2021. Uh, but first, joining me as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy. David Mossy, 2021, a soccer savant as always. And a Fox Soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire, as uh, as always, Mossy. How are you on this? As I mentioned, Monday, January fourth, in the year twenty twenty one. We took a little break. We took a little week off. I think you will uh, indulge us a little bit of a of a break, uh, considering we do this each and every week. We thank you for giving us that. We are rejuvenated and ready to go. Mossy, how you doing, my man? I am doing well. As you mentioned, today is January fourth, so we are well within the Happy New Year zone. But that is an eternal debate. Uh, what is the Happy New Year cutoff? If you see somebody in late January for the first time, can you say Happy New Year then? Or is there a certain date where the Happy New Year thing has gone by the wayside? I don't look at it as a date. I look at it much more relative to the person that I am seeing in that if I have not seen them in the New Year or conversed or texted or or any type of uh, interaction with them, then I think it's completely appropriate for you to wish them a happy new year because it's the first time that you are seeing it. Now, you get into the Februarys, uh, whatever. Now, we are notorious, my family, notorious for when we do actually do our holiday uh, or Christmas card or anything like that, it ends up being in the February. And that's a whole other debate about when is acceptable to send a holiday card uh, after the uh, case. But, you know, these are these are uh, first world problems, as they say, Mossy. But, yeah, I think if you get into February, then the Happy New Year thing loses uh, any effect, even if, yeah. So I'm, my cutoff date would definitely be the end of January. You? What do you think? Uh, yeah, I, I would even go mid-January. I don't know. You, oh, somebody okay. January 20-something and still wish them a Happy New Year, that, I don't know. I feel like you kind of missed the window on it. Wow. 
All right. Now, we, we, as, we, as we mentioned, we took the week off uh, last week. You know, we came to the end, and we, we don't really do year-end type of synopsis shows or best-ofs or anything like that at the State of the Union. We might do that some t- some point in the future. We just never really have, have, have done that. But I, I did want to, to just kind of give a coda to <laughs> the year that was 2020. And, and I know we all look at it as, uh, in general, and, and certainly the, uh, the general public, uh, out there, um, and the majority out there look at it with um, with in a negative light, and because it was a historically crap year. But I was talking to uh, my mother, and my mother's a poet, and she was mentioning something uh, about uh, her poetry group that that she has. And one of the poets had uh, in in one of these Zoom calls that they had had read a poem about, yes, 2020 was crap, and yet there was also incredible beauty that deserved to be celebrated, even if we even if we didn't hear about it. And uh, it's forever, no matter what we do, going to remember it as this historically dark, and as I said, sad, and for a lot of people, scary year, but also, there is incredible beauty. Um, there, e- even though, like I said, we didn't hear about it, there were birds, there were marriages, there was love and art and ingenuity and kindness and milestones that were achieved and humor and discovery and animals and food, etc. cetera. Uh, so there are beautiful things that will come to be associated with the year that is 2020. I know in the history books it will be written as this dark, sad depressing uh, and scary year. But I, I think it is worth mentioning and pointing out that even in a year like this, there were wonderful things that happened. And so if you if you had those wonderful things that happened to you, uh, don't be afraid to celebrate them. Not that you, not that you would. And uh, I celebrate them. Uh, I celebrate them with you. But having said all that, I think we all look at 2021 and hope that things are going uh, going to be better. Now, a lot of times, Mossy, we talk about our television uh, and our movie stuff. We're going to save that to later on a little bit uh, in the show because while we don't do necessarily look backs, what we did do this week is we decided to uh, do something when it comes to our TV and movie uh, tastes and uh, what 2020 was. So save that a little bit. But just in general, anything what you would like to tell the people out there in terms of interesting things that are happening right now in the uh, in the world and life of David Mossy? Uh, no, as you mentioned, I know uh, we're going to save the TV stuff for later, but I, I did finally watch Ted Lasso the last couple of weeks. Um, and then uh, I watched, uh, like many other people, the Wonder Woman movie uh, over the holidays. Oh, don't get me started on the Wonder Woman movie. Oh, my God. Three and a half hours or whatever it was. I mean, come on, man. I mean, you know, my my kingdom for an editor. Somebody just, I mean, ugh. All right. Anyway, Mossy. Uh, uh, no. Did you like it? Uh, well, I, I should say I'm not the best <laughs> judge because I'm not a fan of comic book movies, so I don't like any of them. I was I was forced to see it given the company I was with. <laughs> Felt longer than The Irishman, says Luis Aguilar. <laughs> <laughs> oh, piping in in 2021, Luis Aguilar uh, with the jokes. Yeah. I get it. Um, but uh, so I don't like any of these comic book movies, but I was told even by people who do generally like these movies that this was considered a bad one. So like, it's hard for me to distinguish between the good ones and bad ones. They're all kind of the same to me, but I heard that this was considered a massive disappointment. Oh, I, I have no problem with the uh, superhero uh, or the comic book type of uh, movies. Actually, some of them can be very, very good. And as a matter of fact, the first Wonder Woman was very, very good. And that's what made this one even even worse. And this was one that went directly to streaming. Um, 
as opposed, I mean, in, in normal times, it would have been a kind of a blockbuster type of open. Well, I don't, I, I guess you, you can't be a blockbuster until you are a blockbuster, but given the, uh, the reviews and then actually having seen it, it, it I, we, I think uh, the State of the Union here does not recommend Wonder Woman 84. The 84 thing was strange. It, it just it wasn't really good action, and it, it just dragged on, and it could have been, it could have been a whole lot better. Anyway, uh, Mossy, uh, enough talk about Wonder Woman, although I love Wonder Woman. Oh, my goodness, Wonder Woman. Ah, so many great memories. Uh, I digress. Ready? Light this candle, my friend. Let's do it. All right. We're going to dive right into it, uh, and we're going to start off with uh, some doings when it comes to Major League Soccer. I know Major League Soccer isn't in business right Well, it's in business, but it's not in season right now, but still all sorts of stuff coming out. And look, when one of the greatest players of all time, and certainly one of the, uh, the legends and iconic type of players that is still playing right now in the form of Leo Messi, starts talking about your league and a connection to it. That is a good thing, question mark, Mossy? Explain to the folks what happened here. Uh, yeah, so uh, Messi uh, gave an interview uh, last week, a lengthy interview to this uh, Spanish program, La Sexta, uh, to just to kind of update everybody on where his head's at right now. We all remember what occurred before the season when he sent the bureau fax and tried to leave Barcelona and was more or less forced to stay. And, and uh, this time around, he struck a more conciliatory tone he talks about his love for the club and how he feels much better about things but nevertheless he still left the door open for for leaving uh, and he talked about how uh, he is intrigued by the possibility someday of living in the United States and playing uh, in major league soccer it was interesting because in the interview he talked about how although he recognizes he has a privileged life he does crave anonymity sometimes and would be nice to be able to take his kids and go to the movies or go to the mall. And, and you know, I, I, in watching that Maradona HBO documentary, I was struck by the claustrophobic nature of his life. It seemed like every time Maradona walked out the door in Naples or Buenos Aires, there was a crowd of people grabbing and clutching him. And uh, Messi, I'm sure, deals with the same thing. And so uh, Matias Almeida, who's Messi's countryman, who's now a manager in MLS, he did come out and say, yeah, I get it. I, I do think, you know, if you've lived a life like Messi has and that pressure cooker for all those years, he probably does crave uh, some peace and tranquility. And so it, it's sort of coming from that place, the appeal of MLS. Uh, but nevertheless, he, he said it, he's put it out there. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, now it's got people thinking that Messi will eventually make his way to Major League Soccer. Uh, so what do you make of that? Oh, my goodness, Mossy. Um, okay, so now we, we've talked before on the pod about how be careful what you wish for when some of these players that say, oh, I want anonymity, I want to be able to walk the streets. And then when that, the, the, when the height of privilege is taken away from some of these players and reality sets in and you are ultimately treated like a regular person, sometimes that's, <laughs> that's not everything that it's cracked up to be from their, uh, from their perspective. Now, look, Messi is on a whole nother level. And even his version of normal is something that most of the world cannot even comprehend. Uh, I, while I do think that he would be afforded a uh, more anonymity in the United States slash Canada, I, I, I think there would be a curiosity, and I don't think it would be as... Um, as comforting uh, or as enjoyable as he may think it would be. Uh, I still think that there, there would be incredible interest. Now, the difference between someone like Messi and Maradona, as, as we've talked about, is I do think that while there was incredible pressure and scrutiny and just uh, a world bearing down on him uh, when it came to Maradona, I think to a certain extent he craved that 
theater and he craved that drama and that platform. I I think Messi, and, and I don't think it's actually played out, he has gone the other way, a much more private, introverted type of existence for one of the great uh, one of the great stars. So that that's all about the off the field type of uh, stuff. But ultimately, he would be coming here to play to play soccer. I would love to see it. I mean, we have talked ad nauseum about the fact that this is a player who, from a very very young age, was given this this golden existence in this bubble that is La Masia, and then obviously playing his entire career up to now in that bubble of uh, of Barcelona. And while oftentimes in the in the back and forth between Messi and Ronaldo, I will cite the fact that, that Cristiano Ronaldo has gone multiple places and has had success. We have not seen that, okay, from a Messi. And not only would we see that in this type of scenario, but we would see it happening where it's not as, you know, when Cristiano left uh, left Spain, it went to the best team in, in Italy. If Leo Messi went to... MLS, and let's say he went to Miami, okay, that the parody that exists and it is manufactured, he would not only just be being seen in a different jersey and in a different light, but in a league that is structured on parody, we would actually see what Messi looks like when he's playing not just with players that aren't of his level, but against other teams that are of equal and in certain cases superior level to him and what that ultimately looks like. So I think I think that if this were to happen, it would be an incredible challenge to him. Now, the way he was talking about it, it seemed much more long-term, so I'm not expecting anything imminent, even though we know we're going to be talking about Messi and, and uh, as it comes up to the end, and even as we're into this uh, transfer window where, theoretically, he could sign a pre-contract out there. But um, it does; it is interesting, and it and... And he also, I think, understands he wants to keep his options open and say good things about a league that certainly could entice him in the future, that not just for him, but for his family, like you said, would be something that he would enjoy. Now, obviously, if Messi or Cristiano Ronaldo wants to come to MLS, uh, they're going to be welcome, whatever their stated reason for coming is. But does it hit you funny on any level when you hear a big star say that the appeal of coming to the United States is precisely that people don't care about soccer as much here? Is that hit you kind of funny because, you know, what we're all striving for is to for the United States to become a rapidly passionate soccer nation like like in Europe and South America. And so in, in a weird way, it's a little bit of a backhanded slap, backhanded weird reason to say that's why you want to come here. Does it hit you funny on any level or no? You actually uh, don't want the United States to become like these other countries and you're happy that, that stars can come here and, and live in peace and tranquility. No, because I think it's an antiquated type of view of the American soccer community and the American soccer public when uh, and, and, and the sport public. Now, look, I'm not here to say that the United States culture when it comes to sports and when it comes to soccer is anything in terms of mass uh, or history relative to other countries and cultures, but it's a whole lot different. That's why I say you got to be you got to be really careful as to what your perception is versus what the reality is on the ground. And by the way, I don't have to tell anybody listening uh, or watching that you know our country is this incredible melting pot. And so, remember in uh, what was it coming to America? Where Eddie Murphy's character, who's a who's a king, and he comes from this uh, country, uh, and nobody theoretically knows who he is, and he's walking through, I think it was the NASA Coliseum or something like that, after a hockey game or something, and this guy comes up to him, and all of a sudden is on his knees and bowing, and the girl that he's with has no idea why this is happening. I think that I think that you would see a, a lot more hero worship and recognition 
from not just the American soccer community, but I think that the community in general, then, then, uh, then I think he anticipates or, or, uh, or expects when it comes to something like that. Now, uh, as I mentioned, Messi did try to leave Barcelona before this season. He was uh, linked with Manchester City, and there were stories that City were sort of concocting this long-term contract in which he would play X amount of years for Manchester City and then X amount of years for NYCFC. So if he went that route, that would more or less lock him into playing for NYCFC if he did eventually come to MLS. Other clubs that have been mentioned as possibilities, obviously the two LA teams, the Galaxy who have this long tradition of attracting big stars, and also Inter-Miami, uh, given who their owner is, which if you want to segue to our next sort of big MLS-related story that uh, came out in the last uh, 10 days or so, uh, which was David Beckham making a big point of saying that in year two of Inter-Miami, he's going to be a lot more involved, uh, a lot more engaged. Um, so what did you make of that story? Yeah, I mean, so yeah, like I said, I do see the the... Um, the the teams look. Messi's not going to Columbus, okay? <laughs> I mean, uh, and and look, that's the champions of MLS. But uh, Messi, you know, maybe the Atlantas get thrown into there, um, and you know, the connection that he may or may not have with people within the club. You mentioned Altios, uh, Matias Almeida and that type of stuff. But you know, I think that if he's coming for the American adventure, he's going to look at what's happened before with other big time players uh that connection to miami like you said is uh, you know it, it is there now the david beckham situation is interesting to me because the first question that i have is well where the hell have you been it's your team okay it is david beckham's inter miami and look i know firsthand what the involvement of david beckham and when we say david beckham while it's the individual it's the team, okay? So when David Beckham gets involved, the David Beckham brand and team gets involved. And sometimes it, to be, it can be an incredibly positive and to great effect, um, and sometimes it, it, it can't be. Now, you know, I was involved many, many years ago, and David obviously was a player, and this is a little bit, a little bit of a different situation, but this is, this is good news for Miami. This is good news for the league, to be quite honest with you. In any league, in any sport, you do not want an absentee type of owner, and I'm not suggesting that he was. You saw him. He did the rounds. He did the press, but if this is your team, and you are David Beckham with that type of power that you wield and leverage and the, and the connections and all that kind of stuff— you should definitely, if you're if you're that ownership group, you should be using that every chance that you possibly can. Because once again, as I told you, this is a reflection on the band of Breck, uh, of Beckham, and it looked and was ultimately, even though they made the playoffs, a failure uh, in terms of uh, in terms of what they did. And, and I guess in terms of living up to the expectations that we have, and a lot of those expectations, to be fair, were the association with David Beckham. So I think this is welcome news. But I I. I am cautiously optimistic because is it some is it a situation where he comes in and he you know, steers this this ship back in the right directions or does he muddy up the waters uh, further right now uh, with with his involvement and uh, is he the only cook in the kitchen uh, and is that cook really doing something that's uh, that's going to push this team to that next level? 
Yeah, there, there's a common criticism levied at American owners in Europe that they're not around enough. They live on the other side of the pond. They don't care. They treat it as a business venture more than a sporting venture. They don't really understand the club, the community. You hear that with the Glazers in Manchester United, Stan Kroenke in Arsenal, James Palat at Roma. You don't hear it as much with John Henry at Liverpool because they hired Jurgen Klopp and started winning all these old trophies and became essentially the model club in Europe. But uh, you hear it with these other guys. And Beckham is almost dealing with that the other way. Now, he would argue uh, there were mitigating circumstances this past year with the pandemic. And also, he's, he, he would argue he made a point of staying away because he didn't want to hog the limelight. But what you're telling me is when things are, quote unquote, back to normal in MLS, you would like to see David Beckham at all the games sitting in the owner's box, giving interviews about the team, looking like he's engaged, like the, the optics do matter to you. You want to see a, a fully invested David Beckham. They do, and and specifically because it's David Beckham. And look, I, I don't make the rules. That's just the way that this team is looked at. It is looked at at David Beckham's uh, Inter-Miami. And so if that's the case, if you're David Beckham, I would say, look, if I'm going to get yelled and screamed at or criticized for it, at least I want to have a say in what's going on. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I want all owners to be to be involved now, not to be, you know, making decisions that they are not capable of making, but you know, this is a, this is one of the great players of the game. This is a player with incredible connections. This is a player that understands the game. Um, and certainly a player much more so than, than, than many other international players out there that has a fundamental understanding of what MLS is and what MLS isn't. Now, the way he could tangibly affect the results on the field is by attracting a top coach and top players and going into this uh, uh, 2020 season, a lot of people were underwhelmed by the Inter-Miami roster. And what the Beckham camp tried to portray was that this was by design. They're taking a deliberative approach. They, they weren't swinging for the fences yet as far as signings. Uh, I have a couple of people in MLS who I know have said to me like, uh, no, they tried. Uh, they tried to lure a couple of big stars here right away from year one and just weren't able to. And the Beckham pull wasn't all that they thought it was going to be. So that's going to be interesting to see moving forward if he is able to attract the guys that people think, you know, like Messi, Cristiano Ronaldo in the coming years. I mean, what do you think? Is there a chance that we might be overrating the Beckham pull or, or not? No, no, I do think that there is a Beckham pull. But what I think, what look, don't let anybody tell you that this was a soft launch from Inter-Miami. And, and that was good. I wanted that. I don't, there, there are certain circumstances where I get why you have a soft launch. And look, they're, they're also going to get a couple more bites at the apple here because at some point we're going to come back into a much more of a normal type of year and you'll be able to kick it off and have a normal type of season. And even though it's still a temporary type of scenario in, in Fort Lauderdale where they're playing and that theoretically in the future, there's going to be even another announcement and, uh, stadium at some point uh in in actual Miami and playing Miami but this is still this is this is not Minnesota okay <laughs> you can't you can't afford and I don't think that they did and so okay they swung but I I got a great appreciation and respect for those that that think big and are big and bold and arrogant and if it doesn't work it doesn't work yeah you'll get criticism but that's okay that's what big bold arrogant teams do so you go right back to the drawing board uh and you figure and you figure it out now with a year under your belt and an understanding of more of what what did work and what uh, didn't work but i don't think the expectations are any different next uh, next year in that i i look to this team to be competitive absolutely competitive but I look for this team to do things that are big and bold. I look for a continuation of the hard launch, whether it failed last year or last year or not. Now, what 
what David Beckham, his involvement now, quote unquote, his involvement now does, it does kind of give you an opportunity to say, well, that was last year and now we're really going to hunker down and we're really going to uh, focus in on it and, and I'm going to be involved now. And so you do get a, a reset, if you will. But look, this is, this is Inter-Miami and from the moment that it was created and branded and trumpeted, it was my expectation, along with a lot of other people, that this was going to, like I said, be a potential super club because of the market, because of the ownership group, and because of the way that they talked about it. And I like that. I like that. And I hope I hope they do live up to that. It, look, if they do live up to that, it's not just good for Miami. It's not just good for Inter-Miami. It's good for the league. Uh, I, I want that to happen. But it didn't happen last year. And I hope they don't. I hope they don't regress. They, they can't regress. Mossy, any other uh, MLS stuff you want to talk about here? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's uh, another wave of young Americans moving to Europe or being linked with moves to Europe. Uh, I mean, we could go through each of them individually if you want. Uh, you know, FC Dallas have forged this partnership with Bayern Munich, so a lot of young FC Dallas players are now going to train with Bayern. The latest one is Tanner Tessman. You might recall Chris Richards actually impressed enough during one of these trials to get signed by Bayern Munich and is now playing with them. Brendan Aronson arrives at Salzburg, who play under Jesse Marsh there. Joe Scally has turned 18, so he can now move from NYCFC to Gladbach. Uh, a couple more that our producer Jeff Hernandez uh, didn't include here, but they're worth mentioning. Mark McKenzie, uh, very close to deal with Belgian side Genk. Uh, okay. Although from what I read today, it's not completely done. So Celtic are still sniffing around, hoping they can maybe snatch him. And then Brian Reynolds, FC Dallas, uh, being pursued by the likes of Roma and Juventus. You might recall he stepped in after Reggie Cannon left for Europe. So, you know, we can go through them individually. But the larger, larger point here is that people like Matt Doyle have been adamant that this, this group of Pulisic, Reina, McKinney, Adams, Dest, this is not a golden generation. This is the start of the new normal. And there are going to be waves and waves of this. And the uh, U.S. has more or less figured out how to produce talent now. And Europe has bought in and into the U.S. talent. And so we're just going to have to get used to this. And it's going to become like Brazil and Argentina, where every offseason there's this whole new wave of players that move to Europe. Do you buy that? Do you like it? What do you make of all that? Oh, I love it. Oh, I love that finally the, the thinking of the soccer world outside of the United States has caught up to the reality on the ground uh, that exists. Uh, and I, 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 Because I believe that there's plenty of talent that has existed in Major League Soccer over the year that just hasn't had this moment in time, hasn't had the connections, hasn't had the infrastructure, uh, hasn't had the eyeballs, uh, and, and hasn't had, therefore, the credibility. And that has nothing to do necessarily with how talented they were, okay? It's not as if the U.S. has never produced talented players. We've done that for, for many, many years. But getting those talented players in situations where they can excel or even just where they can be seen to excel, that's important. And having the people look at at those as viable options. The interesting thing, Mossy, you mentioned a bunch of FC Dallas uh, players. Look, FC Dallas has built their brand on developing young talent. The interesting thing when I see this is that there was this, there was this fear that MLS was going to become a feeder league and be a uh, in on an Ajax type of situation. The Ajax uh, type of situation, and you even mentioned Genk and you know, different teams, usually what happens is you have these teams that within their league, in their country, are the perennial powers and favorites, even though they are feeders to the much bigger leagues and bigger teams out there. In this situation, where the relationship has been established with none other than Bayern Munich and FC Dallas, you know this is a team that is 
mediocre, okay? Yes, they've had blips here or there, but for the most part, we don't look at them as one of the guiding lights when it comes to Major League Soccer or as one of those big types of, uh, types of teams. And maybe that's, that's what enables them to still compete and do what they are doing right now. Because if I'm on the outside, I'm looking at MLS, first thing I look at is, well, it's, it's not about the best team because that parity that exists means that there's quality throughout. Can it be replicated now by other, other teams? And do other teams want to necessarily do, uh, do what they are doing? But all in all, this is, this is great news. This isn't, this isn't bad for Major League Soccer. This isn't going to hurt Major Soccer. As, as a matter of fact, I think it's going to enhance the credibility, not just the credibility from outside, but even the credibility, uh, credibility from, from inside. It's going to help, and I've already seen it, help enhance our national team. Uh, and I think ultimately that this is, this is not the, uh, the succumbing of Major League Soccer to being a feeder league uh, or a, a minor league type of scenario relative to the rest of the world. This is just a, a recognition that they want to participate in the world market out there. Uh, it's good business and that they can participate it and they can flip some of these assets and they can make a lot of money two, three, four times their uh, their investment that then goes back into retaining talent or providing uh, opportunities and, and monies to bring talent in from uh, from elsewhere. So I think I, I have a hard time looking at this as as bad for major league uh, for major league soccer. I don't know. What about you? Uh, no, I agree with you. Uh, certainly for the time being, uh, as we've discussed, uh, if the stated goal is still to someday become the best league in the world, then at some point down the road in the future, you're going to have to revisit the strategy and try to hold on to players. But for now, I think MLS is being smart and sort of playing the game and accepting its role in the in the in the global landscape as more of a selling league. Uh, so yeah, I think this is all good stuff. Um, yeah, I'm curious about this uh, Tanner Tessman. Did I say Taylor Tessman before by accident? No, I think you said Tanner. Uh, um, well, because it's... Hey, hey it's, look, just because he's going to Europe to train with Bayern Munich doesn't mean we get to pronounce his name right. Well, it, it's only because Taylor Twelman is the one that I first saw tweeting about this, so I sort of have Taylor in the head when reading this. Uh, but, uh, no, so so yeah, I'm curious to see this Tanner Tessman one because I do like him as a player, and that would be pretty neat if another American, young American got signed by Bayern Munich. So... Um, um, I, I, I just I want to mention something, uh, though, because I'm, I'm going to talk later on, way later in the show when I do I one for the road about you know college and, and education and stuff. But I, I do want to mention that as we see and as we send more and more players, and by the way, more and more young players, really, really young. I mean, you're talking sometimes about players that have barely even made a dent when it comes to the first team in Major League Soccer. As we are sending them over, obviously they have been scouted. And there is a belief either in what they are right now or a belief in what they are more likely a belief in what they're going to be in a few uh, in a few years. We have to be cognizant of the fact that they're not all going to succeed. All right. And it's not all going to be wine and roses for uh, for everybody. And that, once again, is not necessarily reflective of how good that individual player is, how good the team that they are coming from is in terms of developing, but it's not all going to be the success stories that that we that we see out there. Doesn't mean we that we don't stop doing it, but I just just a word of caution because I'll be interested to see how some of these players that we pump up and prime for this move to Europe either because they've had a stellar period, albeit a short period of success in MLS, like a, um, like a Brendan Aronson, 
or guys that are just right out of the shoot and they just see something in them and they want to get them really early and they anticipate, I'm talking about they, the other teams over there, that are going out there and are very, very naive and, as I said, young. And this is sometimes their first experience away from anything that they have known when it comes to home. It's, uh, it's going to be interesting. And I'll talk more about uh, that later on in the show. Anything else, Moss? And, and one last thing for me. For people who aren't familiar with Genk, which is the club that Mark McKenzie has been linked with, uh, they are an incredible stepping stone club. Every year when they're in the Champions League or the Europa League, invariably I see this article, what would the Genk starting 11 have looked like if they held on to all their players? And it's truly amazing. They have this fabled youth system produced De Bruyne and Courtois and Benteke and Origi and Yannick Carrasco. And then other young players that have passed through there on the way to bigger things like Koulibaly and Milinkovic Savic and Leon Bailey and Wilfred and Didi. So uh, that, that's actually a, a very decent landing spot for uh, Mark McKenzie, a club that knows how to develop young talent and then ship them off to bigger things. It's a that would be actually a very smart move for him, I think. Nice, yeah. I mean, it is definitely a stepping stone for for Mark McKenzie. I think he has much higher aspect uh, aspirations, and I think that he can uh, achieve those. Anything else, Emma, uh, MLS wise, Mossy? No, that's it. Okay, uh, I will just uh, say this before we go uh, that the the league <laughs> and the players association are. There, there are going to be a lot of stories uh, coming out because of uh, the situation right now where we don't know what the next uh, next season is going to look like. The league doesn't know what next season is going to look like. The uh, force majeure clause, which is the act of God clause that uh, potentially is going to be invoked here that's going to throw everything uh, into a tizzy here when it comes to the... Uh, the contractual obligation between these two parties, we don't know, but it's going to be something that we're going to keep an eye on as we go uh, as we go forward, because uh, the players need the league, and the league need the players, and at some point they got to meet somewhere in between. I just don't know what point that is, and in a 2021. Uh, your guess is as good as mine. All right, Mossy, uh, we're going to take a real quick break. When we come back, we'll look at the rest of the world. Don't go anywhere. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Hello, State of the Union listeners. It is Alexi Lawless here to tell you about our brand new Fox Sports app and website, foxsports.com, reimagined for the modern sports fan. Go ahead and download the new app now. You don't even have to pause this episode. Every day on the new app and website, you'll see the top stories in sports, plus a rich world of written content, videos, social media, and analytics to give you a 360-degree view of the most important stories of the day. You can favorite your favorite teams and players so you'll never miss an important update. Streaming live TV has never been so easy or elegant. Every Fox Sports game, including all pregame and postgame shows, are just one click away. For the extra invested fan, we also go deep with real-time wagering lines, trending prop bets, win probability, and key player projections. So download the new Fox Sports app or visit www.foxsports.com. All right, we're back. We're going to take a look at uh, the rest of the world going on, uh, either on or off the field. Some interesting stories out there. Mossy, uh, what are we looking at first here? What do you want to look at first? 
Well, a big game this weekend, a lot of people had their eye on, was the Chelsea-Manchester City match in England, which City won convincingly. Frankly, Chelsea got uh, got off lightly with it only being 3-1. On balance of play, that game could have been 5 or 6-0 because City were actually quite wasteful throughout, and Chelsea scored in stoppage time with pretty much the only chance they created the whole game, uh, Hudson-Odoi. So uh, that, that scoreline actually flattered Chelsea for what was just a completely embarrassing performance. Uh, before we get into the... Uh, other aspects of the game. There were two Americans prominently involved. Uh, Zach Steffen started in goal for City because Ederson is out with uh, uh, quarantining because of COVID precautions. And then Pulisic started for Chelsea. Uh, Steffen didn't have much to do throughout the game. He did have one embarrassing moment early on. I'm not sure if he thought that ball deflected off a Chelsea player or wasn't an intentional pass or he was so nervous he forgot the rule. What did you make of that? But that was a bit of a bizarre well, moment. Well, like you said, he had next to nothing to do the entire game. Um, I guess you take the win, but the only thing that he had to do, I mean, he had one job, okay? And look, that's, it's, it's not fair to him because he was, playing, he was playing in front or behind a team that was just phenomenal. And the possession was incredible in the way that they went about it, and rarely was he even threatened. Um, and, so, and so, yeah, uh, whether it was a brain fart or he just legitimately just didn't recognize what was going on and whether it's because he's not, he doesn't play regularly uh, or not. Look, all I care about is that he was on the field. He was a starting, uh, he is our, our you know, I, I think our arguably, but, but I think a lot of people argue our number one goalkeeper when it comes to the U.S. And when he went back to Manchester City, there was a question of, all right, what, how many games is he actually going to play? And he's getting the cup games and doing all that, which is fine and well, um, but this was this was an actual EPL uh, performance, even though he didn't have to do a whole lot. So that's on the one side, and I think ultimately it was it was good for him that first off they called on him uh, that he got the uh, that he got the win that he got the clean sheet, and you know I had a little anomaly there, uh, and I do think it was an anomaly there, and and you know they 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 cleaned it up. The other side, actually, uh, from an American perspective, I thought Christian Pulisic was incredible. <laughs> I mean. I know at times it looked like he was trying to do everything himself, but taking on two and three players at a time and his quickness and his one-two touches and, and all of that kind of stuff. I mean, look, if you watch that game, a game in which Chelsea got completely destroyed, I, I'm hard-pressed to find anybody that would watch that game and not single out Christian Pulisic as a bright spot. Now, that does, that's not always the case with Christian Pulisic plays, but in this game, I, I actually appreciated and respected the fact that he, he constantly went searching for the ball. He constantly was doing what he does so well, which is take players on. Uh, and at times, it was two, three players. At times, he would get... Ultimately, that last guy would nick the ball or, or, or do whatever, but it wasn't as if he had options up there that you said, well, why is he trying to do everything himself or, or he's doing too much? I thought he was doing as much and maybe even more than, uh, than no, he was definitely doing more than anybody else out there. I don't know. What did you think of the performances? No, of, I, uh, I tend to agree. I think an even better example of what you're talking about is the uh, game against Arsenal on Boxing Day, which they also lost handily. But he was Chelsea's best player by a mile that day and was the only one making things happen. And yeah, this game too. Now, this game, I thought he got dragged down a little bit into the overall sort of malaise of the team. But still, you're right. He's the only guy that even looks capable of conjuring up anything. I tell you, other than Neymar, 
there are very few players I see in the world that have as quick a first step as he does, where if he gets a defender in space, he does that little jab step where you just know he's going to blow by him. And then, as you mentioned, more defenders converge and maybe he tries to take too many on and he loses the ball. But that first guy, it's always a given he's going to blow by him. There are very few players in the world that have that quality. And so, yeah, I come away even in what was ostensibly a disastrous day for Chelsea uh, to me, his reputation is intact. I mean, you're right. He's the only guy in that team that tries to do anything. But here's the problem, Mossy. okay? The way we are talking about this performance from Christian Pulisic is, you know, you mentioned Gank or something like that, of, of a player who shines despite the fact that, that he or she is not playing with the best players or is playing against vastly superior opposition and still being able to show. This is Chelsea. This is Chelsea with all the talent that they have, with all the money that they have spent. So are we looking at this as, I mean, I'll say it right now. Christian Pulisic is too good for this Chelsea team. Um, And (laughs) his talents are being wasted right now at Chelsea with this Chelsea team, the way way that they have it. Uh, With that, Mossy... Um, shall we talk about who is in charge of this Chelsea team and what, whether the, whether this is uh, are they going to continue on or is Christian Pulisic going to be faced with a uh, a new manager? Well, first off, Jeff Hernandez, if you're listening, that's your Twitter clip there. Christian Pulisic is too good for Chelsea. Let's run that up the flagpole and see how uh, <laughs> folks in England react. But yeah, no. So um, Chelsea, it's uh, only uh, four points from their last six Premier League games. They've slipped to eighth in the table. Uh, so yeah, a lot of pressure on Frank Lampard. Now, Lampard has tried very hard to sell this. He acts like last season doesn't even count. And mind you, he actually got a lot of praise for his work last yeah. season. He inherited the team under a transfer ban, couldn't sign anybody, lost Eden Hazard, and still they finished in the top four, got to the FA Cup final, got to the knockout stages of the Champions League before losing to Bayern, no shame in that. And yet he treats last season like it was a non-year. And now this is the first season where he's actually been able to sign players and bring in his guys and start to implement his ideas. So in his view, he shouldn't be under any pressure because it's much too early here. And this is really the first season of kind of a new project. And so give me time. And we're not supposed to be winning the Premier League this season. So uh, he's going to great lengths to sort of downplay things. Uh, but uh, yeah, people aren't buying it. People feel like last season was the stepping stone year to implement your ideas. And now with the talent you have, this team should be better. It should be competing for major trophies. And it sounds like by your shaking of your head that you're, you're more on that wavelength. Yeah. I mean, you shouldn't buy it. Okay. This is somebody who has already been given opportunities that others wouldn't be, uh, be given because of his legendary status with the club. And look, I don't begrudge him that. You use what you got at your disposal to, fi- to figure out uh, ways to get opportunities. And, but as I always say, Mossy, all right, as the great Janet Jackson so eloquently put, what have you done for me lately? That he is arguably the greatest blues legend in history. That counts for little, ultimately, when you are managing. And by the way, don't worry about tarnishing that reputation. Uh, he, he will forever be that legend, regardless of what happens uh, here. But this is ultimately about results. And the reason, one of the reasons why he is that legendary player is he knew every time he stepped on the field that it was ultimately about results. And so now in his capacity, with all the things that we mentioned, all the money that's been spent, all the talent that they have, a... A, a solid and very respectable and some would say really good first uh, season despite some of the challenges uh, that he had this is this is not good enough this and 
to say, well, you need to give, you need to give him time. Why, does, why would he get time any more so than anybody else? Uh, we know that they, they, you know, they, uh, they churn and burn him over there. And that he is that legend, I don't think that that absolves him from the responsibility of this team, which I think is underperforming and should be much better. It's interesting. There have been less managerial changes during this pandemic. Rory Smith wrote a piece about this recently, and he, he, he talked about how there are two uh, reasons brought on by the pandemic. Number one is financial. Teams are in dire straits right now, so they don't want to be paying multiple managers. Number two, the fact that the stadiums are empty, so it makes it not as toxic of an atmosphere if you're struggling. I mean, that Chelsea-Manchester City game, I, I mentioned it was an embarrassing performance by Chelsea, and had that been in front of like a packed Stanford Bridge, the fans would have been booing and chanting Lampard out. And if Roman Abramovich is watching that, you know, that does seep into your brain. It kind of influences your perception of the situation. And so managers aren't having to deal with that right now, which is one of the reasons why you've said during our MLS telecast, if you're going to be bad, now is not a bad time to be bad. And so, yeah, I mean, what do you make of that? Do you think? And then, you know, the other, the other reason Rory gave was that he just thinks clubs are just generally becoming more patient and just feel like, you know, giving manager time. There's the example of Klopp, who it took a few years to kind of get it completely figured out at Liverpool. And there's now this sense that that owners are figuring out that this sort of trigger happy approach doesn't work and that you do need to give managers more time. So what do you what do you make of all that? All right. I mean, eventually somebody's going to get it right if you just keep giving them time. Look at Ole. <laughs> I mean, we you know, now Ole goes from he needs to be gone to, oh, he's finally got it right. And well done. Good patience over there at Manchester United. No, I, I, I look, I, I understand that there are moments where you have to look at long-term and you have to, but, but your analysis of that long-term decision or that, that decision to give somebody the benefit of the doubt and to have patience is relative to the fact that you see it heading in the right direction. And by the way, that doesn't mean that there can't be steps back along the way, but ultimately you see that energy heading this, this ship in the right direction uh, uh, right now. And you see in that manager that you have somebody that is going to be able to be successful. And to your point, the assessment at, at this point is also, both for player and coaches, to be quite honest with you, is will they be able to do it when it does return to that normal type of situation and that, and that pressure? Is this player playing well right now because the pressure isn't on him or her? Is this coach doing well or not doing well because that natural environment that they maybe were hired in is no longer there? It doesn't change the fact that if this continues on, your tools as both a player and, a, and as a manager are going to be relative to this, this new situation that we're dealing with. And so you got to be able to deal with the fact that there's nobody in the, in the stadiums. you got to be able to deal with the fact that you may not have players uh, because of Corona or, or all these different things, that's what's that's how you are going to be. Uh, that's how you are going to be assessed. But I, you know, the Frank Lampard may very well come good at some point. But is that a reason just to constant just to give him more and more time to figure out when that ultimately happens? I mean, like you said, there's plenty of talent there. All right, there's lots of money being spent. So at some point, it's going to click in. But is it going to be the function of a coach or a manager that has this plan and that at that point, then they kick on? I don't know. It's interesting. Uh, the name being mentioned by the English media, if they were to get rid of Lampard now, is Thomas Tuchel, who is suddenly available because he himself got sacked by PSG over the holidays and replaced by Mauricio Pochettino. That was the other big coaching news we should spend a second on. 
Uh, yeah, uh, just to do sort of the obituary on Tuchel and PSG. I know a lot of people think it's because they're third in Ligue 1. It was sort of a results-based sacking. I don't feel that way. Uh, it was more of an intangible thing. Him and Leonardo just never clicked. He was hired by the previous sporting director. Uh, from the moment Leonardo took charge, you could tell he doesn't rate Tuchel that highly as a manager. He didn't think that team was that well coached. He felt like they were winning in spite of him and that PSG could do better there. You know, if it was just results-based, there, there are some mitigating circumstances this year. They had a huge COVID outbreak at the beginning of the campaign. They've been murdered by injuries. They're only a point off the top in Liga, and of course they're going to eventually get their guys back and rip off some victories and win Liga. That would have happened with Tuchel. It's going to happen with Pochettino. And, you know, the, as far as the Champions League goes, he got to the final last season, and this season he topped the group with United and Leipzig. So there's not really a results-based reason to fire him. More so, it's, it's because Leonardo just didn't like the feel of the situation. And his contract was going to be up at the end of the season. They weren't going to keep him anyway. They had their eye on Pochettino, so they figured, let's make this move now so we don't miss out on Pochettino. Somebody else might grab him first so uh that's my read on that situation so now the question is seen a lot of articles last few days is pochettino a good fit and frankly what is a good fit at psg you know it's such an odd club to manage and i've talked about how uh when the when the qatari owners bought the club the first manager they hired was carlo ancelotti but they weren't ready to win the champions league yet ancelotti after one full season there got an offer from real madrid he felt like he couldn't turn down and he went off to real madrid and since then psg have interestingly Uh, For a club that we all think is ostensibly obsessed with winning the Champions League, they've opted for managers who have no Champions League pedigree and who are more tacticians, guys like Laurent Blanc, Unai Emery, Thomas Tuchel. Um, when you kind of feel like that situation is screaming for an Ancelotti, a Zidane, more of a player's coach who knows how to handle stars, who has a knack for winning Champions League titles, who's not fussy about tactics and will just kind of adjust his system to the players he has. And so in steps Pochettino, who at least did get to a Champions League final, but has never won a trophy in his manager career. And I do view as something of a tactician. So I don't know, Pochettino, PSG, how did that hit you? Is that is that a weird fit to you? Or, you know, what do no, you think? I do agree with you that, that the the never-ending search for what this person is, or even if this person exists that can find a way with plenty of money, plenty of talent, plenty of ambition to figure it out. I mean, so I'm, I'm running through the list of, 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 of people out there that kind of fit your, your... I mean, look, at some point, Klopp's going to go someplace else, right? And he's going to want to go someplace that having done everything will give him the opportunity to, to to do something that hasn't been done. So, and he's, I mean, he's certainly of that ilk, right? That, uh, that is something that I don't think they have really had before. So, I mean, Pochettino, I guess he never really, it never really floated my boat, Pochettino, to be quite uh, honest with you. My, my dad agrees with you. He, he's always found Pochettino a bit overrated by the English media and doesn't get all the fuss about him. So he's my dad is not that impressed by this hire. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, you and him are kind of on the Oh, side. my goodness. All right, what are we, we got some Cristiano talk here, Mossy? Uh, yes. So uh, this past weekend, uh, Juve thumped Udinese 4-1, to two of the goals courtesy of Cristiano Ronaldo. And so he reaches 758 official goals in his career for club and country, which uh, surpasses Pele. Um, And you might recall a couple of weeks ago, Messi surpassed Pele for uh, most official goals with one club, 644. He reached with Barcelona. Pele scored 643 for Santos. Now, uh, this all this stuff has drawn an interesting reaction in Brazil. I want to ask you first before we get into this. When I say the name Pele, What's your reaction? Are you a believer 
in The Legend of Pele? Are you a Pele denier? Are you an agnostic? Do you feel like I never watched the guy play, so how could I have a strong opinion one way or the other? Like, when you hear the name Pele, what, what reaction does that elicit? Well, first well, first off, of the teams that he was associated with, I will always first and foremost associate him with Brazil, okay? And and so I think his, his legend and legacy... You know, this is even coming from an American where we know the association with the cosmos. But his, for me, his legend and legacy was built in terms of what he did in the international game. Okay, um, for me, that's 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 the way that it that it hits me. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't I don't know how other people feel out there and what they associate with uh, with him, but. Are there people out there that that don't buy the legend, or or somehow think that time has distorted actually how good he was, or or the goals that he scored? No, I, there absolutely are. It's uh, I mean, listen to give a little context here. In fairness to Pele, um, in 1969, he was minding his own business in his late 20s, still scoring goals in sort of the natural flow of his career. And a statistician in Brazil at the time surfaced and said, hey, I crunched the numbers on it, and he's approaching 1,000 goals. And the media picked it up and made it a big thing. And so in November of 1969, he scored his, quote, unquote, thousandth goal. And then if you count from there, it, his total ends up being 1,280-something in his career. And it wasn't Pele at first who made a fuss about it. It was others that made a fuss about it around him. However, over the years, he has kind of adopted that number and has brought it up constantly in interviews as like the foremost evidence that he's the greatest player of all time. And th- there, there is this younger generation that doesn't buy into the Pele stuff at all. If you search Pele's name on Twitter, you'd be amazed at the vitriol and people who think he's a fraud and overrated. And so... Uh, people have looked at that and said, like modern stat- statisticians have looked at it and said, okay, let, let's let's have a look here and see how many real goals this guy actually scored. And that Pele total has actually become a source of derision because it includes a lot of goals and friendlies and exhibition games and tournaments that don't exist anymore. So people have taken a scalpel to that number and they've come out with official numbers that are much lower than that to the point where now Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo are surpassing him. And people in Brazil, it, the whole thing is kind of rubbing them the wrong way because they think it's it's coming from a place of trying to diminish Pele. Yeah. And so they're pushing back against these numbers and people are mocking the Brazil's numbers and it's turned into a whole thing. And, and I don't know, what do you make of it? Well, first off, this evidently is a Brazilian thing because I remember going through this with Romario, right? We did a whole thing. There was a thing with Mar- Romario and the amount of goals that he did or didn't score and are they Absolutely. counting his under eight goals that he scored or whatever, you know. So they're all great players. I, I've, t- I've told you time and time again, this game that we play in is, is, you know, what would Messi have been had he played back in the 70s? Or what would what would Pele have been had he played in the 2010s or something? A good player is a good player, okay? Good players adapt, and they figured out. I truly believe that if you were a good player, regardless of era and time, you would figure it out, and you would be uh, you would be good. Maybe even maybe even great, uh, and you would live up to it. Um, the the amount of if there are people out there that are dismissing Pele, uh, I would also and this when we talked about. Uh, uh, the death of Diego Maradona, one of the things that we talked about, and it absolutely applies, maybe even more so for, for Pele, they played at a time where you say, oh, yeah, you know, he played at a, a different time. Well, back in that time, they were trying to kill you as goal scorers, as attacking players. And by the way, the laws back then kind of allowed them to to uh, at least maim you severely, whether they killed you or not, or whether there was protruding bone uh, was, was, was the question. So 
I, you know, I, I would, I would certainly die on the hill that uh, that Pele is arguably the greatest player of all time, regardless of the goals. I mean, the, the goal number really doesn't matter to me. I don't get caught up in this. So when when Messi or Cristiano Ronaldo, they were always going to be in the conversation for the greatest all time, regardless of what the goal to- totals are. I don't even, I should be quite honest, I don't even look at the goal totals because I, it's such a very different type of environment that they were playing in and growing. I mean, if Pele happened today, he would probably be in Europe, okay? He would have spent a lot of time in uh, in in Europe because that's just the kind of the way that, you know, he would kind of have done what Neymar did, I guess. Um, so, yeah, it's just a very apples and oranges type of yeah, I mean, uh, comparison the, the argument of in Brazil, uh, Not to belabor this point, but the argument in Brazil is that people who don't have a feel for Brazilian football in the 60s are viewing things through like a 2020 prism, not understanding that, uh, clubs back then played a lot more friendlies than they do today. Uh, Pele was such a worldwide draw that Santos spent like a big chunk of the year traveling around the world and playing in friendlies against the top clubs around the world, the Real Madrid's and Barcelona's. And although those are quote unquote friendlies, they were matches that were taken very seriously. And you can't just ignore those goals and pretend they didn't happen. And so that's sort of, you know, I look, I think that the, the numbers emanating from Brazil are probably inflated and there is some stuff in there that's silly. But I feel like some of this other stuff is it's gone too much the other way, where, like I said, people are just taking a scalpel and anything that doesn't fit neatly into sort of a 2020 prism. If it's a competition that might have been a big deal at the time in Brazil, but doesn't exist anymore. Oh, then that doesn't count. And so you get into this. Uh, I don't know. It, it, there's just a lot of gray areas there. And it's tough to determine how many, quote unquote, actual real goals Pele scored. <laughs> but it I sounds mean, like you're nonplussed it, by the whole thing. We all know that when it really comes to scoring goals, it's Robin Lewandowski that's ultimately <laughs> going to go yeah, down I mean, as the greatest. But like I said, the, the, the younger generation that wants to put Messi and Ronaldo above him anyway, now has the sort of statistical evidence to do so, I guess. Um, and, 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 and it should be noted, this whole discrepancy over Pele's goal totals is going to affect a strictly Brazilian thing too, because according to FIFA, Pele has 77 career international goals. Neymar is in second place at 64, and Neymar's 28, he's about to turn 29. So he's well on pace to break that. Frankly, if he hadn't had the injuries he's had the last two or three years, he probably he might have broken that already. Uh, so it's just delayed the inevitable. He's, he's going to surpass that number of 77. And so the whole world is going to be, because it's Neymar, I don't know if celebrating is the word, but they're going to acknowledge that Neymar has surpassed Pele and become Brazil's all-time leading scorer, except in Brazil, because the Brazilian Federation's number for Pele is 95. They count all sorts. Yeah, I know. It's a crazy discrepancy. <laughs> they count... The certain matches that are FIFA treats as exhibition games that weren't real games in which like Brazil before a major tournament would sometimes play friendlies against club teams to prepare. And so FIFA doesn't count that, but the Brazilian Federation does. So you get into all these gray areas there. But so it's going to be weird that the whole world is going to be acknowledging the fact that Neymar just surpassed Pele, except in Brazil, people are going to cling to this fact. No, no, he's nowhere close yet. The number is 95. Well, I mean, if if the last couple of months has taught us anything is that... uh, Counting matters, and you can come up with different answers when it comes to how you count things. So, uh, all right, Mossy, uh, one more thing over here. Uh, and w- actually, I think this is going to be a South, uh, a South America-centric um, type of, uh, uh, of segment, even though we kind of call it taking a look over in Europe. We're going to go right back over there because I know you made a point of saying that you wanted to talk about the Copa Libertadores, right? Yeah, I haven't mentioned this competition all year. I do want to get a a quick bit on it in here. But 
we, we've reached the uh, semifinal stage of the Copa Libertadores. Now, this is the 2020 Copa Libertadores, but because of the lengthy stoppage due to COVID, it's now spilled over into January of 21. So the semifinals are this week and next week, and then the final is in late January. Uh, the two semifinals are both Brazil versus Argentina matchups, Santos against Boca Juniors, and then the other one is Palmeiras against River Plate. Um, incidentally, it's the third straight year that the semifinals have been two Brazilian clubs and two Argentinian clubs. And Tim Vickery has written about that, expressing concern um, that Comnebol made some format changes recently that have sort of exacerbated the gap between those two countries and everybody else. And he thinks it's gotten to a point where it's a bit farcical and needs to be looked into, that you can't just have two countries dominating this competition to such a degree. But uh, nevertheless, um, two very enticing matchups. I'm looking forward to them. A lot of history in that Santos-Boca matchup. It is Pele's team against Maradona's team. Maradona obviously just passed away. Boca is trying to sort of win this competition in his honor. Um, these, these two teams met uh, famously in the 1963 Copa Libertadores final, which Pele and Santos won. And then Boca returned the favor in the 2003 final, beating Santos thanks to a young Carlos Tevez. Boca are now led by an old Carlos Tevez, who is still around there, amazingly enough. And then the other one, as I mentioned, Palmeiras River played very good as well. Now, listen, I'll be rooting hard for the Brazilian clubs, but I'm also fully aware that uh, the matchup that all the neutrals, all the hipsters, you know, people like Grant Wall, who because of you know one bus ride 25 years ago, <laughs> South American football experts, the matchup they all want to see is uh, Boca River. And and their appetite was whetted even more this past weekend because those two teams met in an Argentinian domestic cup match, and it was an absolute thriller, 2-2, great game. So the prospect of them meeting again, uh, is very enticing to people. I get it. Uh, remember, they met in the 2018 final. Uh, the first leg at the Bom La Bombonera was 2-2, and then there was all that crowd trouble ahead of the second leg. The game ended up getting moved to the Bernabeu in Madrid, where Pitti Martinez and River won 3-1 in extra time. Uh, this time around, the final would also be at a neutral venue, but not because of any crowd trouble. Comeball have since changed the format to a one-off neutral venue final, and this one is at the Maracana in Rio de Janeiro. So that would be sweet for Argentinians if Boca and River face off at the Maracana. Um, of course, it would be empty stadium, unfortunately. Um, so, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about this in, in the coming weeks. I want to, next week I'll review the first legs and after that, the second legs, and then we'll ramp up to the final, especially if it's Boca River. So I don't want to dig into it too much here, but. All right. But I got, uh, I got one question for you though, yeah. um, when it comes to this and yet, like you said, we will uh, deal with it. I, I do want River Boca. So, um, I'm, I, but I've never been accused of being a hipster. So yeah. I'll, I'll take that. Um, so Grant and I. Are, are on the same page when it comes to something like that. But my question was, and I, I think you mentioned it earlier, uh, when it comes, uh, was it Tim Vickery? I don't know who you were talking about uh, that had expressed concerns. Uh, I, I don't see this as a, a problem right now, but maybe I'm missing something in terms of the structure right now where it it uh, it hamstrings other, other countries and other leagues when it comes to this. So just give us a, a little primer about why that argument would be made when you have... You know, even the semifinal, while it's just, while it's still the same two countries, there's, these are you know some of the preeminent type of clubs that you have down there. Yeah, I mean, Vickery is concerned by the lack of parity. He sort of sees uh, what's going on in Europe and the sort of super club era we're living in, and he doesn't want South America to move in the same direction. You know, part of the charm of this competition is that you used to get like a Colombian, Uruguayan, Chilean team Got there it. every now and then and give it a different flavor. And if it's just Brazilians and Argentinians every year meeting in the semifinals and the final that, that that's going to get a bit tedious. Uh, so, I mean, that's his Got point. It. Got it. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye on that uh, going uh, going forward to see if the hipsters are rewarded or uh, the Brazilians. Uh. <laughs>
<laughs> a reward. We're going to take another quick break here. When we come back, oh, yeah, time for Ask Alexi. Don't go away. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $20 on the steel MS-162 or MS-170 chainsaw. Real steel. Offer valid through June 30th, 2024. See participating retailer for details. All right, we're back and it's time. Oh, yes, it's time. The first Ask Alexi of 2021. That uh, time in the pod when you, you know, you, you ask us questions or you send us concerns or comments out there and you use that hashtag Ask Alexi or Ask Mossy. We get a bunch of them uh, each and every week. We go through, we, uh, we find some good ones that we think that you're going to enjoy. And uh, we have done that again this week. What do the people want to know this week, Mossy? Uh, first up, CDJR. Um, scoring on a former team, can you celebrate the goal? Seems like one of those unwritten rules that is okay in some situations, but not others. Oh, God. Um, I, I, it drives me nuts uh, <laughs> when players score and then hold back some sort of celebration out of some sort of, uh, well, what they would call respect for their former team. It's performative BS is what it is, okay? It is rarely genuine, and it comes from a place oftentimes of just fear, I guess. I think you're cheating. I think you're cheating yourself. I think you're cheating your team. I think you're cheating the supporters of that team, and I think you're cheating the people that pay your salary and that have decided that you are worthwhile of a place on that team. Uh, I, yeah, so I don't like it. I don't see it remotely disrespectful for a player, oftentimes whose sole job and the reason why they have made a career, or maybe even the reason why they have been legends at the team that they are now playing against, for them to score a goal and to celebrate it. It is the hardest thing to do in our game and to diffuse that, that moment of, uh, of, of ecstasy and of climax uh, because out of, out of some sort of tribute or respect to your former team, I just, I, I don't get it. And look, I know people are saying that, yeah, but you probably never had the affinity and the affection and the, and the connection to, uh, to a team out there that would ever make you possibly do it. Or they're saying you didn't score any goals. All, all, all true, but I just think it, it just, it reeks of just a, a of, of self-serving. And I think it, I, I think in a certain way, it, it does the opposite of what you're trying to have it achieve. I, I'm, I think you are disrespecting the game, and I think you're disrespecting the opponent that you claim to hold so high when you do something like that. I don't know. Uh, what do you think, Mossy? I 100% agree with you. It's funny. I, I live a pretty uh, peaceful Twitter existence. Uh, I don't tweet that often. Very few people care about what I have to say, and the few that do like me, and I tweet pretty non-controversial <laughs> things. So, Gee, I what's have, that like, Mossy? I have generally... <laughs> 
pleasant uh, interactions on Twitter. The one time where I've even where I've gotten a little bit of a window into your world was when I tweeted something about how I think this whole not celebrating a goal against your former team is stupid. And I got absolutely hammered from people who, you know, oh, that's because you don't have any class. And I don't know. I just don't see any equivalent uh, in, in other sports. Like, you know, if LeBron James hits a buzzer beater against the Cavs, he's allowed to pump his fist and smile and be happy. If a guy scores a touchdown against his former team, he's allowed to celebrate it. You know, of course, you don't want to taunt anybody and be disrespectful about it. But my God, a guy scores a goal and he has to act like he's upset about it. He can't smile and, and run around and pump his fist and be happy. I just think it's the silliest thing. The idea that that's disrespectful to his former team, I, I, I agree with you 100%. This is just a, a silly, silly tradition that, that needs to stop. <laughs> but it is, I mean, it is an unwritten rule. We see it time and time again. And, you know, especially in this day and age where players move about so so much and they go to, from uh, from team to team to team, it does get uh, a little rich when, uh, when, you, when you see it done. All right, what else, Mossy? Next up, uh, Preki Lives. Um, Leeds picking a fight with the media. Why bother? Nothing to gain. Mm-hmm. So, okay, uh, this was a, a huge story, and actually it, it continues to be a, uh, a big story. The, uh, one of the Amazon pundits over there, and Amazon, for, those that pe- that for, for people that don't know, is a huge broadcaster uh, when it comes to the EPL over there in England. So Amazon broadcasts EPL games. And so one of the pundits on Amazon uh, is a woman by the name of Karen Carney. And uh, she, like we all do in the business, uh, after uh, um, after the game, made comments about Leeds. Now, Leeds, as we as we know, and in, in the weeks uh, and the years that we have been around, we we talk about them because they are they are good content. They are fascinating in terms of what they do on the field, what they don't do on the field. Uh, obviously, in Bielsa and and uh, and their and their history and what they are what they are trying to do, and they give us all sorts of uh, content. You know, she made a comment. Uh, relative to Leeds uh, being promoted last year and how uh, the you know the situation with the pandemic and the uh, the COVID situation uh, may have uh, helped in that process. Please correct me if I'm wrong here, Mossy, and uh, anything that I am uh, anything that I'm saying here. Look, it it was a provocative, I thought really interesting, and um, but also a subjective type of comment something that she's paid to do, something that I'm paid to do, something that all of us are, are, paid, to, are, are paid to do. Having said that, uh, Leeds United, and you mentioned Twitter earlier, uh, Leeds United decided that this was not something that they agreed with. You know, they, they have their opinions, and they certainly uh, w- felt like they wanted to defend the work of this team and that it was unfair uh, and unjust and not right to say that it was done uh, relative to the pandemic and uh, and COVID. All right, fine. Uh, they decided to tweet that out and uh, or tweet out their defense of their team. The problem is, is that, as you know, uh, at Mossy, and even though you've had a very small exposure to it, Twitter can be incredibly explosive and incredibly... Um, uh, divisive uh, and the vitriol that can come out sometimes from what seems to be an innocuous type of, uh, of, of statement can be legendary. And that the club is defending themselves against a criticism and an opinion of a pundit, 
okay? That invited a whole lot of, not constructive criticism, not even banter, just some real horrible type of comments to, uh, to, this, to this pundit. Uh, when the comment came out from uh, Leeds, I, I said, I, yeah, it's, it's, they're defending themselves, and I looked at it as benign, okay? Uh, we are in this business to give our opinions, and I do in, in, in no way, shape, or form believe that I am special or um, I am protected by the fact that I'm a pundit from anybody disagreeing with me, including the very people, if they are individuals or the very entities, if they are a club or an association or anything out there that I'm being critical of, defending themselves in the public sphere. And whether you like Twitter or not, it is the public sphere. And so turnabout is fair play. And, and, and that's the way that I believe it. Uh, it, 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 it has to be, okay? Now, there are those that think that this was beyond the pale and that they should have known that this was going to invite the type, not, not criticism, but well beyond that, that she experienced. She has since left Twitter. Twitter is not for the faint of heart, uh, as, as you know, and she's probably going to be better for that, for not having, not having to deal with that. But I did not, was it, was it designed in its intent to create the situation that it did and to ultimately hurt somebody in the way that it did? No, I don't, I don't think so. But I also don't think that, that a club should let something that they feel that they disagree with just go. Now, if they do, it's just going to go off into the ether and, be, and, and, and fade away. And sometimes you're just highlighting it. Uh, and, and really, you know, what you're doing is, is engaging people that otherwise wouldn't even know about it. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm okay with, with clubs defending themselves and the individual players or the, or the results or a situation uh, uh, that they have. I don't know, Mossy. Am I, am I being... Uh, you know, am, am I off base or am I being insensitive to the situation? Well, first off, I know that this isn't really the issue, but the soccer geek in me does want to analyze the soccer merits of what she said. Mm -hmm. And I actually think she made a very fair point. And I am the biggest Marcelo Bielsa fan in the world. But even I acknowledge he does have a style of play that's physically taxing and his teams have tended to. Uh, fade over the course of seasons, including in his first campaign at Leeds, where they topped the table for much of the campaign and then faded down the stretch and didn't get promoted. And all she was saying was they're, they're doing pretty well in the Premier League. It's going to be interesting to see how they fare over the course of the season because she brought up last season, right around the time where Bielsa teams usually start to fade, the pandemic hit, the season shut down for several months. And then when they came back, they were fresh and played very well and got promoted. And so, you know, I, to say they got promoted promoted because of COVID maybe wasn't the most like artful way to put it, but she was just saying it was, it was, it was perhaps a contributing factor. And I don't have a big issue with that. And I, I don't know, man, uh, maybe I, an, an, a team's official Twitter uh, page, I feel like it's supposed to behave with a little bit more like decorum. If she said something that really like was offensive towards the club and they want to push back and say, but just expressing a soccer opinion about the team, do you want your official Twitter account like in this trolley sort of tone mocking a reporter because you disagree with the, I, I don't know, maybe again, that, that gets back to this larger question about Twitter. I, I just, I just recoil a little bit at just this, the trolley like aspect of it, but maybe that, maybe you're just more used to it than me so that the I, leads I, tweaked I, I probably am. I'm probably more used to it. I probably 
have a thicker skin. And, and I mean, look, earlier this, this podcast, I said that Christian Pulisic is too good for Chelsea. If Chelsea came out on their official Twitter handle and said, uh, no, that's, that, that's, uh, that's not the case. We have incredible players. You're just an American. You have no idea and you're biased or, you know, whatever, whatever to defend themselves. That's fair game. That's fine. I have no problem with them doing that. And by the way, if that were to happen, you know all the Chelsea and Frank Lampard supporters and, and England supporters would, would, uh, would, uh, would jump on and go and I go think crazy. that would be weird. I think if Chelsea fans hear that, what you said, and want to argue with you about it, that's one thing. I think the team's official Twitter account should sort of rise above that and understand that they're— Oh, I agree. I, I, look, I, if, if I'm running that Twitter account, I get it because here's the problem. If you go and try to put out every single one of those fires, that's all you will be doing. Because it's, especially over in England, where it's on a constant 24-7 type of thing. Had they just let this go, it just would have, it would have gone away. They made it something bigger than it was. But, but, I also, but I also, part of me says, you know, there's times where you do have to stand up. And if you truly feel that, and once again, it's not that you feel, and they've, they've since said, you know, they, they have respect for her. They have invited their, her to the grounds. Uh, you know, they're going to do everything they possibly can. They have not taken down their response. Uh, and they've taken plenty of flack out there from a lot of people, certainly a lot of people in the media, a lot of pundits out there that felt that it was beyond the pale, that that was not something that they, uh, they should do. But I also feel that in this day and age where it's so easy to just write something and say something that then becomes the gospel or the truth, uh, or the prevailing wisdom out there, you do have to pick and choose your moments. They picked this one, but you know, it's a part of me says you should. Well, not you should be allowed. Obviously, you should be allowed. But a, a huge part of me says this is this is part of the deal, especially if you are in this position that we are in, that we are giving our opinions each and every day, and if we do it well. There are going to be a segment of people that do not agree with it and vehemently don't agree with it. And there's unfortunately also going to be a segment, and this is the downside of social media and Twitter, that are going to do things and say things that have nothing really to do ultimately with what you said and are going to say vile, horrible, but despicable things about you uh, that, once again, have nothing to do necessarily with the opinion that you have. I I've just come to accept that, and maybe, maybe I'm numb to it, and maybe... Maybe I, you know, maybe I've lost my capacity to feel or to be sensitive uh, to these things. And if that's the case, then and, I hope I hope not. But, and the um, fact that she's a female pundit versus a male, like if you're Leeds, would you think twice about sending that tweet just because you know how Twitter is and that you're going to end up attracting a lot of sort of sexist uh hate in her direction. I mean, how does that factor into it at all? If it had been a male pundit, how different would this story be right now? It would be different, but I think that in and of itself, while it while it shows sensitivity, I think in in, in, a, in a strange way, if you look at it, it also there is an element of disrespect because you are treating some somebody differently, and ultimately we all want to be treated, we all want to be treated equally, and so my opinion relative to another person's opinion. And look, I know I'm I'm dealing in hypotheticals, and and I'm being a little idealistic. And the reality is that who we are and the way that we look and the, and you know our, all of our baggage and biases always comes into play. But yeah, I mean, I just thought I, I thought it was really really interesting in the way that Leeds decided to handle this and how they have gone about uh, continued. And you know, ultimately, um, you know, I I hope 
you know, people will be watching her now and seeing what she says and how she goes on. And I think she'll be fine. She, you know, from what I've seen of her on television, she, she, she's doing the job the way the job should be done, where you do say interesting things, where you do say things that are entertaining, where you do say things that are provocative. And that's exactly what she did. And that she got blowback and that she got blowback from the team. All right. It's going to be. You know, it, it'll uh, it'll be okay. And, and now she's not on Twitter, so she doesn't have to deal with that cesspool that it often is. Uh, and after a heavy topic there, we'll end on a more lighthearted note. Uh, Austin Duffy said, uh, since State of the Union also doubles as my weekly TV slash movie podcast, I want to know your top three TV shows and movies from 2020. Ooh, interesting. Okay. <clears throat> so, And you got three too, right, Mossy? I have three TV shows. I really struggled with movies. I didn't watch yeah. very many movies this year. Yeah, I uh, I struggled with. Yeah, and what's a movie now anyway? Um, okay, so you got three two. You want to go back one 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 and one? You want to do that? I'll do one, then you do one. Sure, sure. Yeah. Okay, so you mentioned it already, uh, but Ted Lasso, uh, and I, you know, I'm glad that you watched it. Um, I think that it is. It's great. Its greatness is in that it is something that I never anticipated or thought that it would or could be. And they gave it such heart and soul and warmth and in a completely unpredictable way. And I cannot wait to watch more uh, and to see it grow and to evolve. And so I think just, just A+. Plus when it comes to a, uh, a show like that. And so much so that it made me, you know, break my cardinal rule of not watching anything unless it, uh, it, is, it is done. Now, they didn't know they were going to get picked up for not only the second season, but they've already been picked up for the third. So uh, I'm hooked. I am absolutely hooked. And I thought it was one of not, not just the great comedies. I mean, I think it transcended that. I just think it, in, especially in a year where we were searching for things to make us feel good about not, not, not just soccer. I know. I mean, make make us feel good about humans. Ted Lasso was one of those was one of those things, and so many, like I said, unpredictable moments uh, in that. And you do not have to like soccer at all uh, to enjoy this. What about you, Mossy? What's your first one? Well, first of all, do you want to hear my thoughts on Ted Lasso? <laughs> yeah, go ahead. <laughs> no, I, I enjoyed it, but it, it didn't hit me the way, and, and I'm clearly in the minority, by the way. It, it didn't hit me the way it hit you and others. Like, I liked it in a, still a kind of a silly Emily in Paris kind of way. I got a kick out of it, but I didn't think it was like a great TV show. Uh, it's funny because I listened to this uh, TV podcast, The Watch on The Ringer, and they did their top 10 TV shows of 2020. Neither one of them put Ted Lasso in there. And then the next podcast, they, they said the, the biggest bit of criticism they got was from Ted Lasso fans who couldn't believe that Ted Lasso wasn't in the top 10. So there's there's no debating. That show struck a chord with people and was immensely popular. Our, our, uh, our boss, Zach Kenworthy, initially stayed away, but then eventually watched it and was also blown away by it and gushing about it. So I'm clearly you- a minority there. Would it would it bother you if the official Ted Lasso account tweeted you and defended <laughs> after you completely maligned this and sicked all of their Ted Lasso fans on you? Uh, yeah, I mean, I could I could come into some criticism for that, and, and you might recall at the very 
top of this podcast, I said I don't like superhero movies, so I'm 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 really putting myself out there. This all right. Well, what do you like? Give us right. something that well, you did. We're going like. to alternate roles here because my number three is going to be a show that I loved and that you were lukewarm about. So we're okay. kind of going to flip roles here, which is the Queen's Gambit. Um, yeah. Uh, I wanted to get. Um, you know, I, I I'm not bragging about this, but I watched like a incredible amount of television uh this this year just astonishing and i mean i could go through the whole list and it would be we all have mind. we all have yeah uh but you know i wanted to get something in there that was new because a lot of the a lot of the best shows i watch were seasons that came out this year of shows that you know have had previous seasons before so you know i don't know if we're talking about best tv shows of 2020 am, am i really isolating the season that aired that came out in 2020 or am i influenced by the fact that i already liked this show so that was something new that hit me that i came in fresh knew nothing about i hadn't read the book and so and and it blew me away and and you know it's a short little mini series so it's over and done with and so it's something very 2020ish and so i will go with queen's gambit as my number okay. 3 i mean I, I didn't hate it but i didn't uh, it, it certainly didn't make my uh, my top 3 i and i watched the whole thing and some really good acting and I thought it was shot really really well uh, the story was relatively interesting but I think it it could have been shorter um, okay my second one is and it, you know you were saying earlier about uh, you know uh, being in the minority uh, sometimes when something is popular the human uh, in us and the human instinct is to uh, deflect it and and not like it as much because everybody likes it this was a situation where I, everybody was talking about it. It blew up, and I not only liked it as much, but maybe even more. And that is, yeah, you know it, you love it, or you don't love it, but you certainly know it, Tiger King, okay? <laughs> um, it was a phenomenon. It, is a, it was a cultural type of phenomenon. I think serendipity uh, not that anybody anticipates or wants to come out in a in a pandemic, and yet it it hit at that perfect spot when everybody, like you said, was kind of digging in and uh, you know uh, hunkering down when it came to the pandemic, and it was just it was the the television equivalent of uh, of sugar, and just I just leaned back and let it just pour into my mouth. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Mossy, what'd you think of uh, Tiger King? It didn't make your list, obviously. That was another one where I initially held off. You're, you're noticing a pattern here with me. If the masses are telling me that something's great, uh, my instinct is to not watch it so I can claim a, some sort of intellectual superiority over exactly. them. But then eventually I come around and I get curious right. and I, I feel left out <laughs> of conversation. So uh, I was that way with Ted Lasso, that way with Tiger King. So I did eventually watch it. And yeah, it was, was thoroughly engrossed like everybody else. I uh, still think that woman murdered her husband and, and find her to be <laughs> okay. despicable. But, so what do you got? Um, my number two, I'm, I'm going to get a little artsy-fartsy here with, uh, on you, uh, is season two of My Brilliant Friend, which is uh, this absolutely incredible show on HBO. It's, it's uh, this coming-of-age story of these two Italian girls Growing up in Naples in the 1950s, uh, Elena Greco and Rafaela Cerullo, and um, I, I, it's it's frankly one of the most beautiful, uh, just on a, on a purely artistic level, one of the incredible TV shows I've ever seen in my life. I got my dad into it, and uh, you know, season it, it, I mentioned season two, season one already aired, uh, I think in 2018 or 2019, and so season two came out this year, and it was even better. I absolutely loved it. 
I can't wait for the future seasons of it. I'm completely engrossed in the story. Um, and so uh, that is my number two, my brilliant friend, which is a HBO program. All right. Sounds good, Mossy. Uh, let's finish it off here. My number three, uh, I mentioned this. Uh, oh, so wait, were months. you counting? Were you counting down or because I just did my three, my two, and now I was going to give you my one. Are we were we not on the same? Oh, I didn't do them in order. Did you do it in order? OK, I was. But okay, I just gave you three. That's fine. I just fine, gave you fine. three. Good, OK, okay. Um, if I had to put them in order, I would put Ted Lasso as my number one. OK, that was your favorite TV show of 2020. Yes, absolutely. And then I would put what I'm about to say is number two, and I would put Tiger King at three. So I guess coming at number two, if you had to rank them there, I didn't know we were doing that, but um, I mentioned this a couple months ago. I'd watch it. It's a documentary called uh, Boys State, and it is um, following around these teenage boys that uh, get together for the uh, I, 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 this state tournament. And, you know, I love politics. Uh, I love uh, everything about them, even all the craziness and the ugliness. And this is this was a Lord of the Flies esque type, uh, a Flies esque type of uh, scenario that I just think said so much about the, the politics in the United States. And as it played out on, in this case, it was young uh, young boys that um, are uh, learning about politics for the first time, and obviously are engrossed in politics. And they come together down in Texas, and they're uh, you know, they have to, they have to uh, separate out into two different political sides, and they have to run uh, individuals for offices and for positions, and all of the, the drama and the, uh, the political intrigue and the, the palace stuff that goes on uh, behind the scenes was in full display, but it was being done by kids. And you saw how, how we as humans, not just kids, but we as humans can be influenced by personality and cult of personality and the way that that things are said as opposed to who's saying them, all that kind of stuff. I just think it was, and it was really well done in that I don't even think you had to really be into politics. And then it came out in 2020 when politics is such a big thing too. Uh, I just think that it was a really, really good uh, film. So that's my number two. And then number three was um, uh, Tiger King. All right, so my number one uh, television viewing experience of 2020 was season five of Better Call Saul. Now, uh, this is uh, a show that uh, I had not watched at all going into this year. I binged the first four seasons and got caught up to season five as it was happening. And so watched the last few episodes of season five on a week to week basis. And again, absolutely blown away. I mean, this show is the Aaron Rodgers to Breaking Bad's Brett Favre. Like you, 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 you already had one Pantheon show and you couldn't imagine that a spinoff of it could be as good or even better. But I think Better Call Saul has achieved that. And, you know, it's a prequel. So somebody years down the road is going to do the ultimate binge of watching them in order. And it's going to end up being six seasons of Better Call Saul into five seasons of Breaking Bad. And it's going to be 11 seasons of the most incredible television uh, all in New Mexico. And and yeah, I, 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 I love, love Better Call, so I can't wait for the final season. The, the, the second to last episode of season five, where when fans of the show, I know you don't watch it, so you don't won't know what I'm talking about, but where Lalo goes to Jimmy's apartment and that tell me again scene is one of the great scenes in television history. 
Uh, and, you know, it's interesting, a little theme here with my shows. My favorite character in Better Call Saul is a uh, woman, Kim Wexler. And then uh, my brilliant friend uh, is, a, like I said, a coming of age story about these two girls. And then The Queen's Gambit is about a woman. So I was very into sort of female characters this year. And I found them more compelling than some of the male characters in the shows that I watch. So, uh, yeah, that's my top three, counting down Queen's Gambit, my brilliant friend and Better Call Saul. Well, no, it's not strange that you like women, you know? I mean, uh, there we go. But, but yeah, as I, like- as I mentioned, incredible movie year for me. Uh, movie, incredible television year for me. Right. Uh, some of the honorable mentions, I binged stuff like Fauda and Ozark. Uh, I even went back and filled some of the holes in my TV watching resume by binging shows like Atlanta and Deadwood. There were terrific uh, seasons of shows like Narcos and The Crown that I love. Um, you know, everything from like these, these mini series shows like The Plot Against America to The Undoing, um, you know, and then I didn't even include documentaries in this, which I perhaps should have, but yeah, I watched this, the Ken Burns documentary on World War II, so just uh, so much incredible, yeah, I mean, I had nothing to do, so what else am I going to do but turn on the television for all those months? Well, look, so- uh, you know, there, there, we could have had list after list, like you said, we were all watching, and there was so much, and, and I know I missed, I'm going to miss something, I'm going to think, oh, that was so good, and I remember it, but some of it just kind of comes and goes as we go through this this crazy time and certainly as we went through uh last year all right well i hope you like that little detour in there uh, because we we do like to talk about what we're watching we do get a lot of response uh as to it and so we wanted to kind of sum up 2020 in terms of uh what really really piqued our uh piqued our interest there all right anything else uh, ask alexi wise that is it all right we're going to take one more quick break and when we come back oh yes it'll be my one for the road All right, we're back, and uh, it's time for my one for the road. I'm going to pick up on something that I, I mentioned uh, briefly early in the pod, and that is the uh, the responsibility that I feel that we have as a soccer-playing nation uh, to not just produce better soccer players, but to, more importantly, produce better men and women that are going to lead our, our country. And I've said that before. Um, you know, I was uh, going back and forth with someone on Twitter this past week about the potential of someday the United States winning a men's World Cup. Uh, believe me, I would love nothing more than to see that happen. And I, I do believe that within my lifetime, I will have the chance to see that, uh, that happen. I know some people feel that that's wishful thinking, but, you know, uh, things like that can happen. And I do feel that we're heading in a direction where that put, uh, could possibly uh, happen. But I, I don't want it at the expense of a generation or multiple generations. And I, I told you before, in our zeal to create better soccer players, I do feel that we shouldn't neglect our responsibility when it comes to providing them with as many uh, opportunities and skills as, as possible. Uh, I was thinking early on um, on the, the more traditional type of soccer path that I took many, many years ago when I went uh, and my dad kicked my ass out at exit nine off the uh, New Jersey turnpike at uh, Rutgers University. And it was my first time playing a, a real high quality and consistent type of soccer. Now, it's de jure nowadays to crap on soccer and what it is and believe me, it has plenty of flaws and we've talked about those uh many many times but the the tools and the skills and the experience that you do get from that 
they can be incredibly beneficial going forward. And it goes back to what I said earlier in the pod, where we, we only see the success stories. We only see those, those, good, those good moments. And look, this is not in any way to suggest that having an education or a college education is the be-all and end-all, and that alleviates you from any challenges or problems that you have, or that you somehow have, uh, are going to be able to navigate life. No, you're hedging your bets. Uh, to be quite, uh, to be quite honest, and all of those many, and the majority, and the vast majority that we don't hear their story, all of those ones that have been off there chasing a dream, or that we have pumped up and we have propelled forward because we thought that they could live up, and they could be those ones, the ones that um, they have finished chasing that dream, either because it's just come to the end or because they just can't go on any further, and they don't have lots of money. They don't have lots of fame. That dream has not ultimately become what they thought it was when they made that decision not to get an education. Um, and, I'm, and I'm caught because while I do want soccer to improve and I do want American soccer players and for the most part you know right now I'm, I'm talking about men's soccer players as it relates to winning a men's world cup I do want that to happen I, I want to make sure that we know what the cost is and if we are sitting there ultimately with a world cup uh, a men's world cup and we are raising it aloft but it has come on the backs of a generation or multiple generations that we um, we betrayed and we left without the opportunity to fend for themselves, then that might be a cost that I'm not willing to pay. And, you know, I, I think about these things, uh, and I think about these things as it relates to the leagues that we have, to the United States Soccer Federation, to the development that we have and youth development that we have out there and what those priorities are out there in the soccer world. And you know, for the most part, what I'm saying I think will will resonate with a lot of people that are out there in youth soccer because youth soccer people they understand the realities and the and the percentages of players that actually do go on to become the stars is is very minimal, and so they do recognize the responsibility that they that they have. I just hope that we, in our zeal to be better, in our zeal to possibly win a men's World Cup, that we don't abandon some of those principles that I do believe have not just made us a unique and special American soccer culture, but I do believe have helped America in doing that because we have produced men and women and that we have given them, like I said, those tools uh, and those skills and those opportunities and those experiences to go on and function in life and in a life that might not have soccer. And sometimes those things are at odds and sometimes they work against each other. And that push and pull and that balance might go different ways as we, uh, as we move on and as we want more and as we want better soccer players and we want better soccer in our country. But um, I just think about those, that, that cost. And I will continue to think about it. And I'm going to talk to some people this year actually about what that cost is and how we are going about it when it comes to... Uh, especially uh, youth soccer, because I'm interested. And I, I look at it sometimes, and I'm at a 30,000-foot level uh, oftentimes when I think and talk about it, and I want to kind of get into some of those details. Um, I, I, I do remain uh, and believe uh, that I benefited from 
the education that I had. And when I say I benefited, I benefited as an individual, as a, as a person, first and foremost. Um, you know, when you're cooking is when you can have that part of it and the soccer part of it, um, and you can come out of it uh, better. But we'll see. We'll see what it looks like going forward when it comes to a, a traditional type of college education and the American soccer player and what that ultimately looks like uh, going forward. Mossy, anything before we head off? That is it. All right. Well, it's great to be here with you uh, and with Jeff and with Louise and everybody out there in 2021, everyone that's, uh, uh, that is listening and watching. Um, we are back. We are starting. If I'm, if I'm not mistaken, this is, we're almost to our fourth year, Mossy. Is that right? Third year, fourth year? Gosh, we, I'd have to look back. I think we started in February of 2018, 19, 20, 20. No, so three years probably. We're coming uh, up to our yeah, three-year anniversary. Essentially three years. Uh, wow. We started, I remember, the week of the Patriots-Eagles Super Bowl. Oh. Wow. Wow. Uh, all right. Well, listen, we will talk again uh, next week, same time, same place. Thank you for uh, reviewing and writing to us. Make sure you use that hashtag AskLexi out there and uh, keep doing the uh, – the ratings, uh, and like I said, the reviews and the downloads and all that, uh, all that kind of stuff, whether you're watching or whether you are listening. Have a great week, and we will talk to you again next week. And as always, size the day.